Second John. Second John. And there's only one chapter, so once you get there, you're there. I want to bring a message this evening on the structure of faith. The structure of faith. Uh, I read books on theology. Every preacher ought to. If a preacher doesn't read, he'll, be, he'll become stale uh, long uh, before he knows it. As people know it, that's for sure. Been doing a little reading in the book about whatever happened to truth and uh, the loss of theology in the evangelical church. And some of these things I think are pertinent. It's, it's something the Lord's dealt with me about, and I want to help you with tonight. Won't be the only time I preach on this subject. Uh, but the Bible says in the book of 2 John, verse number 10 If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, Receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. Properly applied, that means if a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, you can be kind and polite, but you cannot say goodbye. Goodbye is a form of God bless you. Same thing for the Mormons or any other cult that might knock on your door. Uh, you say, how do you know that? I'm reading it in the Bible. And it what it said, if there come any unto you, bring not this doctrine, receive him not in your house, neither bid him God's speed, for he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. Doctrine. But what is the this doctrine uh, that's mentioned there in that verse number 10? This doctrine. It's the doctrine of Christ you find in verse number 9. But what I want to point out to you tonight is how doctrine's built. Um, the importance of doctrine. Where does it fit? Uh, can I be a Christian without doctrine? Those are some reasonable questions to ask. Look in the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, chapter number 3. This is a very familiar section of Scripture. If you've read in the pastoral epistles any, and you've heard me preach through them, Second Timothy chapter three. Second Timothy three starts off harsh. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, and it seems like we're there, that's for sure. But skip down to verse sixteen with me. This is where I want to be. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We could continue to list verses that talk about doctrine. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 and verse number 1. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Second John 9 talks about the doctrine of Christ. I pointed that out to you. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 12 talks about false doctrine, the leaven of the Pharisees. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, just a few pages from where you are now, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Doctrine of devils. So we, this, this thing of doctrine just keeps cropping up. You ought to look up the word doctrine, see how many times it's used in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's not just a New Testament word. There are basically two types of doctrine uh, from a theological point of view. There's didactic and polemic. You say, what in the world do those words mean? Didactic means teaching. And then polemic means argumentative or being opposed to something. And by the way, we fundamentalists get whacked for that all the time, that we're opposed to everything. We're not for anything. Uh, we get picked on about that. Well, I'm going to deal with some of that thought process tonight. 
How would you describe God? Think about that just a minute or two. Matter of fact, go home tonight. Take a sheet of paper and explain God. Just, just, you know, just some things about Him. How would you describe God? The way you describe God is the doctrine you have of Him. That's your theology. Where did you get that theology? Some people get it out of music. You listen to some, used to be country music. Some of it used to have decent philosophy of life, but now it's all about heaven's just a sin away and sin and getting drunk and all kinds of stuff like that. That's a bad place to get your theology. Real bad place. When Brother Taylor first came here, I, I, I was just teasing him about being a Yankee from Michigan. And I played, I can't remember, I think it was Hank Williams Jr. saying if the South had won the war, I'd, we'd have had it made. He said, I'd probably be the president of the United States. And we kind of laughed about that. But you can't get your theology out of country music. But you've got a theology. Whether you think you do or not, you have a theology of who God is and what God is. So how would you describe him? Why do you say what you are thinking or what, you know, why are you thinking uh, what, what you do about him? Where'd you get that? How'd you develop that? What does First Baptist Church teach about the Godhead? Are you familiar with, uh, with it? We have it online. You can uh, look up online and get our church uh, doctrinal statement. We believe in the triune God. We are not oneness people. We believe that there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're, they're, they're not one person. They're one Godhead. The Father is not the Son, and the Son's not the Holy Ghost, but they're all God. And so we can't divide the substance nor confound the persons. Modalism is a, a view that when God is doing this, He's the Father, and when God is doing this, He's the Son, and when He's Doing this over here, he's the Spirit. Nothing could be further from the truth. We believe in one God, eternally existing in three persons, co-equal in power and attributes. That's what First Baptist Church teaches about the Godhead, and there's much more than that. What does First Baptist Church teach about the inspiration of Scripture? There are varying degrees of inspiration as far as the world's concerned. Some people are, they'll say, I'm in, you know, as the Bible inspires me, it's inspired. That's neo-orthodoxy. Uh, there are those who say, well, some of it's inspired, but not all of it. I just read to you, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. All Scripture. So what does First Baptist Church teach about inspiration? We believe in plenary verbal inspiration. Plenary meaning completely, and verbal means word by word. Uh, I don't believe that men pin down the thoughts of God. I believe that men pin down the words of God. Those are two different things. How, and let me ask you this. How would you express a thought if you didn't use words? What's that game they play when you do hand signs and draw stuff and charades or whatever? I mean, that's basically what we'd be reduced to. We have a, a fully inspired Bible, word for word. You can cast your soul upon the truths this book. You can believe the Christ of this Bible for your eternal soul. That's what we teach. What do we teach about the end times? I've checked some church websites recently. Uh, most of them are Southern Baptist. And they said, at an appropriate time and manner, God's going to end the earth. That's as weak as pablum. That's as exciting to me as a bowl of cold oatmeal. That's not even close to fulfilling what the Scripture says about prophecy. The, there's a rapture going to take place. And that could happen now in, at any moment. Regardless of what's going on in the Middle East, and we, we all watch that with interest as we're concerned and pray for the peace of Jerusalem, they shall prosper that love thee, as, as Brother Fowler prayed a while ago. We, we want to do that, but the, the rapture does not depend upon anything that happens over there. 
the rapture could happen in any moment King Jesus could return. Well, at the rapture, then there's going to be a seven-year tribulation period. There's going to have to be some kind of overlap area there at the first. Uh, Dr. Bob III gave me a book uh, by a man. I, I can't remember his name right offhand, but he talked about the prophecy. And he had gone through and looked at some things in Daniel and Revelation and said there's going to be like a 75-day overlap as he counted all the days that are listed in the book of Revelation. And there will have to be some kind of a... It's not going to be like a, a light switch being flipped. The rapture happens and the tribulation begins. But it will be very closely followed behind that. And there's going to be seven years of horridness upon this earth. I, hard to describe how bad it's going to be. Uh, the oceans are going to turn to blood. Not like blood, turn to blood. That's what the Bible says. Everything in the water is going to die. And then he said all the rivers and, and lakes, every source of water that flows into the ocean is going to become blood as well. It, I mean, you know, men can't live without water. It's going to be a terribly difficult time. The sun's going to scorch people and burn their skin. There'll be a period of time when people will want to die and not be able to die. All that's in the tribulation period. Does that sound like in an appropriate manner, appropriate time? Well, at the end of the tribulation period, King Jesus is coming back again. And he is coming as King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 19. Set up the throne of his father David and rule and reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem while Satan is bound in the bottomless pit. After a little while, he'll be released. That thousand years is done. He'll be released and he will gather a, an army of people who have seen Jesus ruling and reigning and still reject him. And they'll compass about the holy city and fire come down from heaven, burn them up, and that's it. That's, that's the period on the end of the sentence of earth and mankind. How, how could I put in our doctrinal statement, we're just going to have an appropriate end and say that that's prophecy? That's, that's not even close. Um, I think that would lead us to being open to a lot of other things. There's amillennialists. Amillennialists think that Satan's bound right now. I'd hate to see the rascal get loose. We are premillennialists here. We're pre-tribulationists here. I make no apology for believing those things. Uh, regardless, I, I have been called some of the oddest names recently. Uh, I had, I've been told I have a feminine theology because I believe in dispensationalism. Got called a Satanist by one woman who, because I, t I stood up for or took up for Israel. And uh, I, that's the first time I've ever been called that. I've been called a lot of things uh, through the years. Liberal is not normally one of them, but that's happened. And, uh, but Satanist is a, is a new one. When you take a stand for your doctrine, there's going to be some pushback. But you have to be willing to stand true. And having pablum doctrine, having soft doctrine, you may be trying to dodge some darts and arrows, but you're being unfaithful. You're just not being honest with people. The bones of evangelicalism. Our bones are the structure upon which our flesh is built, and we have sinew and tendons and muscle and... Uh, Flab. Some of us do. Some of you are skinny and don't have any. We have a structure. So we understand a structure. Evangelicalism has a structure. Uh, it started out with doctrine very close to the fundamentalist. Now, you may not know where fundamentalism came from, but in the, in the late 1800s, German rationalism began to work its way over here to America and by the early 1900s, those who held tenaciously the Word of God began to go to war. And they were called the Fighting Fundamentalists. Men like J. Gresham Machen, B.B. Warfield, and other giants who were giant intellectually. They stood against that. And so in the 20s and 30s, you began to see independent churches popping up. And on into the 50s and 60s, that, that movement continued 
And we're an independent Baptist church, not because I'm angry at the Southern Baptist Convention or the American Baptist Convention or the Baptist Missionary Association or the Association of Baptists, whatever. They've got so many different... There's 31 different kinds of Baptists last time I checked. It's not because I'm angry with them, but I believe the Bible teaches every church ought to be an autonomous body. I'm not responsible for what some other pastor preaches in his pulpit. We are hearing men who once claimed to be evangelical defending LGBTQIA+. Saying that we've had the wrong attitude about that all along. No, we haven't. We've had the right position. Evangelicalism's bones are beginning to break. They started out with doctrine very close to fundamentalism, but... They decided that appealing to a larger group and swath of people warranted downplaying some doctrine and some practices. And out of that came what we call neo-evangelicalism, who didn't hold very tightly to the Word of God at all. And they still don't today. There's the basics of liberalism. Uh, modernism is just old liberalism in different clothes. The new moralities, the old immorality, it's, it still needs to be preached against. They keep changing terms and stuff like that, or they'll take good words and re- redefine them. That's what postmodernism is. But the basics of liberalism is this. They never believed in being born again to begin with. The stats that I read said that 64% of Americans believe in God, believe the Bible in some form. Only 34% of them claim to have a born-again experience. i got to wonder about the rest of them. What are they? I mean, the Bible talks about that's That's not terminology Baptist made up. That's terminology God gave us. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. But liberals never believed it to begin with. They never held to a fully inspired Bible. They just believed the Bible was inspired as it inspired you. And some of them say, well, the words of Jesus are inspired. And, you know, where these guys' words are, and they, they pick and choose. I, I've already read about that in the book of 1 Corinthians, where people begin to pick different preachers to, to be their favorite. In our hymn book, we have a... a a book or song that says the Bible stands like a rock undaunted midst the raging storms of time. Its pages burn with the truth eternal and they glow with a light sublime. The Bible stands like a mountain towering far above the works of men. Its truth by none ever was refuted and destroy it they never can. The Bible stands and it will forever when the world has passed away. By inspiration it has been given all its precepts I will obey. The Bible stands every test we give it for its author is divine. By grace alone I expect to live it and to prove it and make it mine. Just another couple of pages over we have a song entitled Standing on the Promises. What promises are you talking about? If I don't believe the Bible, what promises am I talking about? The song is celebrating the fact that the promises of God in the Bible are true. We can cast our soul upon them. We can believe God for those true things that that He has promised in His Word. The basics of liberalism is they never believed in being born again, never held to a fully inspired Bible. And they were big on social charity and do-goodism. Just as a historical aside, you ever heard of the National Council of Churches? Probably some of you have. During the Vietnam War, the National Council of Churches here in the United States gathered up medical supplies and sent them to North Vietnam. While they were killing our our boys, they were using this group, who I, I believe is a socialist group at best, to help tend the wounds of V.C. who had been fighting Americans. That bothered me. Bothered me deeply. 
But they're big on social charity and do-goodism. That's, that's salvation. That's, a, that's being saved. You're working out. You have a heart for other people. And listen, I commend folks for helping uh, the poor. I commend them for helping those who, who need help. You have folks who, who need uh, dental work. And, and, and I know missionaries uh, sometimes will take dentists to the mission field with them. I'm, I'm, and I'm not against that. But I'm say, what I'm saying is that has to be the outworking of salvation. It can't be the basis of salvation or the, the fact of salvation. To the liberal, salvation is mainly a philosophy instead of a faith. I believe what I do because I've read it in the Bible, not because I heard somebody say it. Now, I like to hear good preaching, and I've been privileged to sit under the, some of the greatest preachers of the last hundred years. Dr. Harold Seitler, prince of preachers. What a preacher he was. Uh, Harold Henniger, what a preacher he was. B.R. Lakin, John McCormick. Um, just great men, C.L. Streaming, um, C.L. Roach, excuse me. James Crumpton preached for us. Men who, who knew God, Dr. Lee Robertson from uh, Highland Park, Tennessee Temple, preached here at First Baptist Church. What great men they were. I, and I appreciate what I learned from them, what they helped me with. But they, they reinforced what I was finding in the Bible. And my preaching should be reinforcing what you are finding in the Bible. When you hear some preacher say, you've never heard this before, this is new, start waving your red flag. Because that's just not so. The Bible tells us there's nothing new under the sun. And we've been preaching it for 2,000 years. And I doubt we got anybody that's just showed up on the scene who understands things that nobody else ever has. But why do all these things matter? Why does it matter that the bones of evangelicalism are falling apart? They're, they're no longer separating from those who hold false doctrine. They're no longer really preaching strong separation of any kind. And we talk about liberals here. What, what does this kind of stuff matter? Well, I want you to think with me about the effects of soft doctrine. The effects of soft doctrine. Number one, it makes the Bible to be less authoritative. We have devolved into a, a time to where professed believers think they can critique the Bible and say, I reject this part and I reject that. I'm not going to live this. I'm not going to do that. It, it, that. That's something for way back when. It's not for us today. Andy Stanley has gone down this trail very sadly. Charles Stanley's son. He's trying to unhitch us from the Old Testament altogether. He began to alter the Ten Commandments, and we don't have to have those. That's why it's important for us to preach the Bible. Not everybody on TV or on the radio is an is a angel of light. <laughs> Some of them are satanic angels of light. Some of them are false prophets and false teachers. And so the effects are that the Bible becomes less authoritative in my life and church becomes more about me than God. I'm, I like it at this church. That's good. It is good for you to like the church you're in. But can I say this with all due respect? It's more important for you to like the preaching than it is for you to be comfortable. You might have to go to play. We, listen, we're blessed here at First Baptist. We got spring cushion pews, the Cadillac of pews, the choir chairs are very comfortable and padded. We have air conditioning and heat. Y'all fuss all the time, tell me it's cold in here, it's hot in here, Pastor. And I'm trying just the best I can to adjust it. I mean, we're blessed, but we don't need these things to worship God. When we met in that little brick storefront building and had those ancient folding wooden chairs uh, and had a few benches you could sit on, had a piano that was out of tune, only had two little space heaters in there, and so when it was cold outside, it was cold inside. Had a wall air conditioner, 
used to have to turn it off so I could preach. It was so loud, making so much racket, and we were sitting there in sweat. But you know what? We worshiped God. I remember well one Wednesday night I was preaching, and somebody got outside the window next to us and began to curse and scream at us. And so I just got louder. They got a little louder, and I went up another level too. Eventually they quit and went on their way. I remember when we had the building revival. Weed, you remember that? We was in that little brick storefront building. We bought the uh, two acres of land here, and we're trying to get some money together to put a building up. And I told the church, I preached the meeting, except Friday night had a, a friend of mine come down from his church. He brought us $500. But I told him if we got to a certain amount of money, I'd take a run around the building. And so we got that amount of money. I forgot what it was, but I got out in the street and around the building. I went just to running. I met a guy in a Ford pickup truck when I just got started, and he stopped, and I came on around the building. He made the corner and turned, and here I was again, you know. <laughs> he just laughed and went on. Oh, my soul, I believe this Bible. And church isn't about me. It's about God. And we can worship God in whatever environment we find ourselves. But the Bible becomes less authoritative when you begin to back up and have soft doctrine. It elevates the individual over Bible doctrine. You can't tell me I'm wrong, preacher. I want to show you something just for your, your soul's sake. Turn to the, the book of Hebrews chapter 13 with me. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. That's not the government. You'll see this in a minute. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. I realize that may not be the tastiest piece of the word of God you've ever read. But if your pastor loves you and he loves God and the Lord moves on his heart to, to speak with you about something, you're obligated to listen. And if it's in the Bible, you're obligated to obey it. Now, you can choose not to. You can say, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. You can choose that because God has left us with that ability to choose. But if you do so, you'll be doing it in, in contradiction of the Scriptures. Now let me give you another balance point to that. Look in the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. So you won't think I'm losing my balance. Chapter 5 and verse 1. The elders who, which are among you, I exhort who also am an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. I tell any preacher that doesn't enjoy preaching to quit. Salvage his people and go somewhere else. Let somebody in, in the pulpit that enjoys preaching. So not it by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage but being in samples to the flock. I'm not to lord over you. I'm, I'm not the final authority. I'm, I am not, a, I'm not to be a dictator from the pulpit or uh, even to the staff. Uh, that's not who, who I am. That's not, not a Bible position. But you are, we are, I am, you are supposed to obey them to have the rule over us because they watch for our souls. That ought to be our attitude about the Bible. If my pastor pointed something out to me that he thought was serious enough for him to point out, I owe it to myself, to him and to God to weigh that thing out. Could he be wrong? Sure. Could he be right? Yeah. The effects of soft doctrine. The Bible becomes less authoritative. The individual is elevated over Bible doctrine. Separation deteriorates. We've seen that amongst the evangelicals. They'll pal around with anybody. Ecclesiastical separation. Now, 
Every church, to me, is an autonomous body. I know the Methodist has a conference and the convention has a, you know, that, and they have associations and different things. But ecclesiastical separation goes beyond the idea that we are just a local church that is minding its own business and taking care of its own business. It also includes the fact that there are some churches we cannot yoke up with. We cannot fellowship with. We have differences of doctrine deep enough that it, and important enough that I wouldn't have them here to preach to you, and I won't go there to, to preach to them and just stir up trouble. I was invited one time to debate a certain religious group here in, in the county. They didn't believe about premillennialism, and I wanted to, to debate. and said, we can debate at your church. And I said, no, we can't. I said, I don't want my, my people to hear what you got to say. They were sitting in my office. They asked me, and I, I wasn't rude. But I said, I don't agree with what you teach, and I'm not going to stir up trouble. I said, you just do what you're going to do, and I'm going to do what I'm going to do right here. You go off your way, and, and I'm pastor right here, and that's all I'm responsible for. But I'm supposed to have some personal separation, too. If I expect the pastor and the church to be biblically separated, then as an individual, I'm going to have to have some separation. Usually when people talk about separation, they say, oh, preachers fix to talk about how we dress. Well, can I tell you this? How you dress is in the Bible. That doesn't say that a woman can wear a certain type of clothing or can't wear a certain type of clothing. It says she's to dress modestly. And men ought to dress modestly as well. So there are some things in the Scripture about how we dress. I I'm not supposed to dress like a woman. How would you feel if you came in here some Sunday morning and I'm sitting up here and I got a, a, a mid-calf dress on and some earrings and lipstick? Why, you'd think I'd lost my mind. You'd have the deacons come cart me out and, and try to examine me, see what's wrong with me. So the Bible does talk about how we dress, and it has some principles. We need to be careful about preaching on particulars, because particulars only last for a little while. I'll give you an example. Do y'all remember them parachute britches that men used to wear, just big, I mean, just big, baggy, huge things? They looked awful. I mean, they looked terrible. Well, if I preached against big, baggy pants parachute pants when they went out of style I'd have to find something else to preach on but if you preach the principles of the word of God they cut across all age groups and and they cut across all time frames I remember being told you shouldn't buy wire rim glasses well I don't have wire rims on now but I have a pair at home uh, that I've worn you know so I understand getting caught up in in the minutia of life but as a Christian, we're to be different. I'll give you some of that, more of that in a minute or two. The effects of soft doctrine. Truth is not valued. <laughs> if I'm willing to clip some corners off of truth here and corners off over there and whittle it a little bit here, then truth no longer is valued like it ought to be. The, what does the Bible say? Find the truth. Buy it and sell it not. Don't budge. The Bible becomes no longer our guide, it just becomes a book of suggestions. And that's what they've done with the Ten Commandments. I won't call the preacher's name, but there's a fellow in another state east of us who for a Sunday morning service had the, the praise group sing ACDC song, Highway to Hell. Said he just wanted to bother the religious people in church. They eventually had to remove him from pastoring because he stayed drunk all the time when he wasn't in the pulpit. When the Bible is not valued, when truth is not honored, things fall apart. What happens is truth is no longer valued, our, no longer our guide becomes suggestions, and eventually you just have outright denial of plain statements in Scripture. All sorts of strange ideas are invading the New Testament church now. 
wokeness. I'm reading a book on that, Wokeness in Christianity. Uh, also got his book, uh, same fellow wrote a book on the war on men, why society hates them. We do need men to just be men, don't we? Well, wokeness is invading our churches. Social justice has become the cry. Jesus is for justice. Don't get me wrong. But the church is not here to right all the social wrongs in society. Might I point out to you, everywhere the Bible has been preached, slaves have been set free. And yet Jesus never spoke to overthrow slavery. He never said, we need to get rid of this institution. His principles and the things that he taught, taught freedom. And when they were applied across the board, then slavery was put away. Only place I know in the world right now where you can still have slavery is, is uh, Muslim countries. There are some who still do. Then these sex traffickers, and may their day come to an abrupt, sharp end, and may they all be found and judged quickly. Eastern mysticism has crept into churches. Meditation and that type of thing. Alcohol consumption. You wouldn't have to look very far. Look it up on the internet. Bible and beer. Men's Bible study. Well, listen, if it's all right to drink, it's all right to drink and study the Bible. They're just following through. Just as long as you don't get drunk, that's the issue. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we're to be filled with the Spirit instead of wine, right? And that word where it talks about being filled, that is a process. It's not a, in, a, in a sudden event. So the process, I'm not to be drunk with wine. Be getting drunk is the idea. With wine, we're in his excess. But I'm to be being filled with the Spirit of God. And yet, because of soft doctrine, in some churches, the pastor will say, it's fine to socially drink. It's all right. Just don't get drunk. I don't know everything, but I doubt very seriously if anybody who drinks alcohol has never been tipsy. If you drink, at some point you've been tipsy. And so by your own standards, you've already violated the Word of God. Proverbs 23 says not to look on the wine when it moves in the cup, when it has its color. Well, how do you get by that? Well, you've got to explain it away somehow. Oh, this verse over here says this. That doesn't mean that. And on they go. The absolute best that anybody can say about drinking alcohol is that it's questionable. That's the best anybody can say about it. As a Christian, I ought not want to be in that kind of an area. I want to be clear of things. The Bible says abstain from all appearance of evil. We're just talking about what happens when you throw Bible doctrine out. Worldly music is creeping into our churches. How would you feel if you turned on your radio, and I don't know any rap stations around here, but whatever the number one rap station is in Memphis, you dial it up, turn it on, and push the button for the volume to come up. And all of a sudden you heard them saying, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You say, what's the matter with my station? Well, when you come to church, do you expect to hear rap music? If you turn to the classical music, and my wife loves classical music, especially piano, and we've got a bunch of recordings of that, and you hear somebody playing the piano very beautifully. But instead, you turn to the classical station and you hear, don't do that because. You'd say something's wrong with my station. But we've let that creep into our churches. Ungodly style of music. Now, I realize that we're very conservative here about our music, and I don't apologize for it. 
I, I don't want to let anything in that's going to be offensive to the Spirit of God. Now, I got with Kim this morning and, and found a song in, in Ron Hamilton's hymnal that we're going to work on. And it's a little different. It's a, it's, it's a little different. But I, I think we can sing it. There's nothing wrong with it. Good song. I don't think it'd be in Ron Hamilton's book if it wasn't a good song, written in 1933. But entertainment, I, I text several pastor friends of mine and asked them this question. Have you ever known a full-blown contemporary church to have a revival meeting? They all said, no. Well, here's why. They've been entertained already. Who wants to go for five nights entertainment when it's going to be the same entertainment night after night after night? I, I appreciate the motivation that some people claim they have to reach as many people as possible. But we're supposed to give the truth of the Word of God. I think it was Oliver B. Green said, whatever you win people with is what you're going to have to use to keep them there. On the other side of that were churches that used all kinds of gimmicks. Had elephants walk down the center aisle, pastor swallow goldfish, hit the preacher in the face with a, with a pie. You can do that, Pastor Taylor, if he'll let you, but I'm not letting you do that to me. And I ain't swallowing no goldfish. The gimmick, that's on the far end of, of fundamental churches that did that. We've never done that. And we're not ever going to do that. My philosophy of ministry, does, that doesn't fit. We want to get people here. Sometimes we'll put up, maybe I'll put on the sign, that I'm going to be preaching on such and such a subject and people will come. Uh, in the community just to hear that. But I'm not going to say, come see the Ricky the elephant, you know, with his big ears, and we're going to ride him up and down the aisles. We're not going to do that. Worldly music, entertainment, philosophy, an idea that we'll just, just have fun. Church ought to be enjoyable. Amen. Unless you're out of sorts with God, then you ought to be miserable. <laughs> but if you're right with God, church ought to be enjoyable. The music and the fellowship and uh, the preaching. And I realize this is not the easiest type of, of message for church folk to hear. I'm challenging you. You have got to establish Bible doctrine in your life. If you don't, you're going to have spiritual problems. What's the cure? Well, the cure is this. Either the Bible is what it claims to be. Or it isn't. There is no in-between. Well, I believe half the Bible. Well, which half do you believe? Well, I believe that part, you know, the, the, everything except the where they got the mistakes in the Bible. Well, give me the list of mistakes. Let me see them. I've been studying this Bible for a long, nearly 49 years, and I hadn't come across a mistake in it yet. The Bible stands. It'll stand. Either I'm going to submit to the Scripture or I won't. That's your decision. You either have to say, I'm going to crown you king of my life, Lord, or you're going to be saying, I'm going to keep my crown and I'm going to run my own life. Can I tell you this? You have a rough way to go. When you are resisting God, and, and if you're out of fellowship with Him, you are resisting Him, then you're never going to win. <laughs> Get it in your mind and in your heart. The Bible teaches that God intends to do His people good. He doesn't intend to, to hurt you and grieve you and give you all kinds of heartache. God intends to do you good. It's in our Bible uh, Sunday school lesson, uh, we go through Jeremiah. That's one of the verses in Jeremiah. He said, to give you an, an expected end. So I'm going to have to submit to this Bible or I won't. The books that I've read, Oz Guinness is one of my favorite writers. I don't know if you ever read him or not. His book, God in the Dark, my soul, what a book. His book, The Call. His book, No God But God. He's not a fundamentalist. He's not an independent Baptist. 
But he said this, and this David Wells guy I've been reading behind said the same thing. One thing about fundamentalists, they have held tenaciously to the Word of God. He said, we've been rude and hard to get along with. <laughs> Talking about us. But he said, they've held on to the Word of God. I don't want to be rude and hard to get along with. But I, if I have to offend somebody and, the, and the, the choice is between men and God, I made that choice a long time ago. While we may not all be theologians, we can study. You don't have to uh, know systematic theology or read uh, Charles Hodges' systematic theology. It's only three volumes. Or, or Francis, or excuse me, not Francis Schaeffer. What's the other guy's name, Schaeffer? Schaeffer's systematic. Do you remember right offhand? It's only seven or eight volumes. Or William Greenhire Thayer Shedd. His is only four volumes. I bought a Hebrew book written by a Jewish guy on the, on the Trinity. I'll be honest with you. I waited off on that thing and I got about maybe a third of the way through and I said, I'm done. I'm done. Stick a fork in me. I can't do it. But we can study. The Bible says, study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman needeth not to be ashamed. And the study there is the idea of cutting, cutting things straight, applying principles of the Word of God. Interpret Scripture with Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. We're already there, so we might as well read it. I'm still there. I guess you are. 1 Peter 3 verse 15. But sanctify the Lord in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The word answer is a very interesting word. When I went to Bible college, young and dumb, about a lot of things, we had to sign up for a list of courses, and there were a few electives. Uh, I got a lot of Bible at Tabernacle. Matter of fact, in three years, at Tabernacle, we'd get more Bible than some schools would get in four years for a bachelor's. And I went on my fourth year and got some more. But I remember looking at that course, Apologetics, and thinking, why are we studying how to apologize? That doesn't make any sense. But the word means to give a systematic answer. So if someone comes to you and they say, I'm not a Christian. I'm, you know, I've never heard of Christ, but I got here in your country, and now all of a sudden I'm, I'm hearing about him. You say you're a Christian. Can you help me? Where would you start? What would you do? You're going to have to know some Bible to be able to help some folks like that. You, you don't have to be a, a, a completely approved theologian, but you need to be able to say some things systematically that will point them to Christ. Well, we're all sinners. Look around us. And, and, and it's easy to point out sin. Everybody. There's nobody who claims to be perfect. And if they do, they're lunatics. But they, when you get them to admit that, then you can begin to say, well, there was one who was perfect who came on this earth to die in our place. And, and give a presentation of the gospel. It says for you, this is not, that's not a preacher text. Verse 15, chapter 3, 1 Peter, that's not a preacher text, that's a Christian text. And again, it doesn't mean you have to have some kind of huge, deep theological understanding, but it means you know enough to present Jesus Christ. And if you, the best thing you can do is tell them, this is how I got saved. That's a pretty good way to start. We must not surrender doctrine doctrine is is the skeletal frame that everything you and i believe hangs on it's critical once i believe that this bible is a divinely inspired word of god and liberals hold to dynamic inspiration that's the same philosophy they used a very similar philosophy to what they used to come out with the niv dynamic equivalence we believe that this Bible right here is the Word of God. Now, I wish I could read it in Greek. I can read some Greek. I can't read any Hebrew. But I can read this one. And this is a translation 
of God's original words to us, guaranteed that we'd still have his word, Isaiah 59, 21. And once you take that, you say, all right, Lord, if you said it, I'm going to do it. And you just start walking. You just stay in the pages of this word. Are there hard places? Yeah. Are there difficult things? You know, when it talks about forgive one another. How many of y'all have ever had anybody hurt your feelings? Yeah. How many anybody ever had anybody in church hurt your feelings? Yeah. Probably the worst pain you'll ever experience emotionally wise is when you're trying to serve God and somebody criticizes it. And then Paul the Apostle had to say this. That we're to forgive one another, be tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven us. So here you are with your bruised heart. You're wounded and offended. And the Lord says for you to forgive. You say, how do you do that? You do it through the grace of God. Holy Bible, book divine, precious treasure. Thou art mine. God loved us enough to give us his word. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Father, I pray you'd speak to hearts. I realize this has been perhaps a little harder to swallow than some things we've preached recently. But Lord, it's so important that we know truth, my soul. Father, help me to show love and compassion for those who are learning, those who are struggling, trying to know. Father, I'm convinced from thy word and by the operations of thy spirit that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. Grant that to us as a body of believers. Then send us out, Father, to a lost and dying world to tell them Jesus saves. In Christ's name we pray and for his sake. Amen.